let's ask ourselves what is the role of design in that and maybe it's not creating that beautiful thing at the end it's thinking about how can we make these systems visible first and that takes time and and that's what i'm asking of myself as well to be patient with that process and to really make sure i'm thinking about who the people are that i'm wanting to work with in order to serve Hello everyone, this is Bonku and welcome to another episode of Design Lab. One of the questions that we like to ask on the show is how might we design healthier lives? On today's show, our guest is Panina Achayo-Laker. She's a graphic designer, researcher, and an assistant professor of communication design at Washington University in St. Louis. Her research and creative practice explore how human-centered, research-driven design methodologies catalyze unique ideas to address complex societal challenges facing communities both in St. Louis and Uganda. She's collaborated on an award-winning project to communicate ailments associated with the spread, prevention, treatment of malaria in Kenya. Panina earned an MFA in visual communication design from Kent State University and a BA in art from Goshen College. She is the creator of Design Ed Uganda Workshops, which equip young people with the skills in design and creative problem solving. Panina is the faculty advisor for a new minor in creative practice for social change at Washington University. Students get exposed to processes designers, artists, and architects use to address systemic, economic, and environmental and social challenges. Thank you for giving us five stars on Apple Podcasts. This is the best way for you as a listener to support us. Thank you, Elaine Gilberg, for saying some nice words about the show on LinkedIn. Here's my conversation with Panina. Panina Achayo-Laker, welcome to Design Lab. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to finally be chatting with you. So fun fact, you were one of the best athletes at Goshen College, <laughs> I read. You, you were a star volleyball and track and field athlete. Is that right? Okay. You know what, Bon? Let me tell you. Like Every time I listen to your podcast, I always listen to how the guests are shocked by all this information you seem to find. And let me tell you, I'm thinking, I wonder what he's going to find out and bring out about me. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. Yes, I did. I did play volleyball and track and field. Were you recruited shit. for that? <laughs> you know, that story is interesting. I wouldn't say I was recruited. I think I, I put myself out there and, and then ended up being recruited by way of presenting myself. So I was in Uganda, of course, high school, and I had never really thought that I would leave or play college sports in the U.S. of all places. But I had a teammate that ended up at Taylor University in Upland, Indiana, and while I was hearing stories about what it's like being in the Midwest and playing, you know, that those little seeds were planted. And at that time, my coach is like, you know what, you could probably get a scholarship and go play college sports. And in Uganda, sports at the college level or university level is not as competitive because it's just very highly academically focused. So anyway, long story short, my coach worked with me. It's passed away now, but made this little video of me at different tournaments playing volleyball. And then we, I just sent it to different places. So this 
Ugandan girl jumping sometimes <laughs> with no shoes, with cows grazing in the background, and they're like, "Oh, she can jump." And then they kind <laughs> of then recruited me. <laughs> that is amazing. And what event did you do in track and field? Uh, I did high jump for a little bit, but mostly long jump and triple jump. And you didn't do that in high school <laughs> in Uganda. You just like walked no. onto the track and field team and said. And- let me tell you, Bob, I did not do it in Uganda. I, volleyball is my thing. Like I played volleyball. Even when I came to college, I played volleyball. And then the track and field coach saw me playing volleyball and said, I bet I could teach her how to jump, long jump, and triple jump. So, so he invited me and I had to learn. I had to learn a, a lot of things. And my technique was always terrible, but I would always jump far and high. And sometimes it was frustrating for my competitors. And yeah. That's fascinating. I, I love that. I, pl- I played a sport in college, the geekiest sport I was on the fencing team at the oh. University of Pennsylvania. So I actually got recruited for that. So I know what it's like to play a sport in college, but it's so hard to play two sports in college. It's so demanding with all the travel. Yes. So I, I imagine it that was is. a busy time for you and you've stayed within academia. You're at Washington University in St. Louis and you're a professor there. And I read that You are the faculty advisor for a new minor that's called the Creative Practice for Social Change. I was like, that is such a great name. And (laughs) I was like, what is this minor? Can you tell us about that minor? Yeah, this new minor is a really exciting venture that we have taken on. So thanks in part to working with um, phenomenal people like Liz Kramer at the Office for Social Engaged Practice at the Sun Fox School of Design and Visual Arts. We, we found that students were consistently seeking out classes that were positioning whatever they were studying, whether it was within the arts, design, or even outside, but they're looking for those interesting classes that would intersect the arts and socially inclined issues. And as we saw that population continue to grow, we also found that in some ways, students who are coming from outside the design school and art school would shy away because they were nervous about their inability to be creative or to draw. Yeah. So a lot in my (laughs) medical students when they were pre-med in college that they would shy away from those more arts focused majors and disciplines. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And so I think uh, minors like this, when we were uh, writing the proposal and thinking about what to even call it, we had to think about a name that would, would sort of capture the essence of what we do, which is we think creatively, we make, but we also really indulge in different kinds of processes that architects, designers, and artists also up approach the creative process in different ways. And you don't have to be either one of those things to actually participate and learn about those processes. So, so this minor really allows for students to, to have an introduction to those processes within through the lens of looking at whether it's community building or co-creation and just working towards addressing and wrestling with social issues. And so they come as they are and they also so, so you could be like a biochemistry major and minor in this, or you could be like a yes biology major. Okay. I love that. Yes, ab- absolutely. And the minor has, so a class I'm teaching right now called design and social systems is sort of like the seminar, the one class that is required that also is the one time all the students that take the minors get to work together and I get to take this great class, which is a truly multidisciplinary classroom and that, and that environment and the energy, I cannot tell you how so 
vibrant and, and exciting it is because you have, I have a student who is on uh, the pre-med track about mm-hmm. just putting applications for med school. I have a, a, another student who is like in the business school and students who are studying environmental science and things like that. And they're in there together, just really thinking about how their own disciplines intersect with the arts while also having artists and designers in the same class learning together and it's really great because you know social issues especially are they're really complex to talk about them being systematic and systemic and they're such crazy systems you know but in this class we're able to have some of my students are experts in things that I'm not expert in Mm. you know they'll talk about policies they talk about like you know why why are these partners using a non-profit model versus a for-profit model and things and things I wouldn't think about it's (laughs) great I do you feel that this generation is more of a conscious for social justice issues because I see that in my medical students over over the years that they're more interested in in social justice compared to maybe my generation and so I, I imagine that this course is a a popular one at at your university Yeah it's been a great reception I'll say this generation they genuinely want to do good. They genuinely care about the greater good. They care for each other. They have seen the faults yeah, of, of their forefathers. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of these issues are on display. You, mm. you can't, it's like there's no escaping them. And they recognize that at some point it's their turn. They're going to be in positions of power, positions to effect change. And so they want to equip themselves to do that. I also think the student that, goes to WashU, which is a liberal arts institution, mm-hmm. is interested in a lot of things. They are the ones who want to double, triple major in yeah. everything, right? And so I, I think in some ways, just by virtue of, of, of their interests and how they value both a, a generalistic approach to learning with, with a deep dive in one area, they know that they'll have to intersect with these issues and wrestle with them. So yeah, they do want to do good. They don't always know how to. And I think classes like this provide almost like a safe space for them to mm-hmm. don't worry about getting things wrong or saying the wrong thing or just really come with your ideas you know we'll, we'll learn about our own biases but you know we'll learn together we'll wrestle with it we won't have all the answers in fact I always tell my students we walk away with more questions mm-hmm. <laughs> than answers but the kinds of questions we walk away with will be deeper than the ones you came into the class with so they do want to do good so you have such a diverse group of students in there. Is there a difference in teaching students who come from more of a science major from those design students? Yes, it literally is in how I define what is design. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think when you're talking with students who have already been exposed or coming into the art school with a genuine love for making and, and desire to create work, great pieces of projects and things like that they already have and oftentimes they they come in with some prior knowledge or information and uh-huh. even just in how to leverage technology to create things I think students coming in like from the sciences who are the ones who are shy right and feel like I don't belong we're talking about what can design do what what does the design process look like and who is a designer who designs who gets to work with a designer mm-hmm. And, and they're looking for their positionality in this narrative. And so I think for them, when you, when, when I, I'm teaching them, we talk about systems, we talk about things that are designed and, and work effectively, but also things that are designed and cause harm. And, mm-hmm. and we talk about why those things are, you know, have those 
effects and things like that. So, but then I feel like, well, shouldn't everyone learn design this way? Yeah. <laughs> Regardless, right? So my students, and it's interesting because now, well, I have some students who are in this class, the seminar with me for the minor with, you know, other students from other parts of the university, and then also pursuing a design degree. So I see them in studio because I still teach foundational what? design studio. And then I tell and it's wild because I tell them what you need to call me out and tell stuff when, when you see us getting so caught up in in those like nitty gritty things and we lose sight of of what it is our design projects are meant to do like call me out on it because in the other class we're interrogating the heck out of the, those things you know that's so ex- exciting because for many of these kids their first introduction to what design is 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 through this course that's 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 amazing so you have an interest in healthcare, but you are a graphic designer. And we first met is when you came to Philadelphia. We had this <laughs> health design boot camp in 2018, pre-pandemic. Fantastic. And so honored that you traveled all the way from St. Louis to come to Philly for that. And I was like, why is this professor of like graphic <laughs> design coming to a, a health design boot camp? And what inspire your interest in healthcare? That's a really good question. I think for me, honestly, and I think today of all days, I tried to really think about where that stemmed from. And interesting enough, it took me back to growing up in Uganda. Mm. My, my my dad was a doctor and we grew up in what they call doctor's village, which, you know, it might sound, it's, it's, it's pretty much an a neighborhood that is in close proximity to the main hospital. So in, in Uganda, a lot of the referral hospitals will also have housing for the medical personnel so they don't have to drive or they can get to the hospital really quickly to do work. So I pretty much grew up in a, a neighborhood with so many other kids and families whose parents all worked at the hospital. So whereas we didn't think of the fact that, oh, we live in doctor's village, I I was exposed to the medical field, like left, right, and center. I, I was seeing not only my, my my dad and my neighbors working and rushing to the hospital and would come and talk about some of their patients or experiences. But I also knew that in some ways I wasn't afraid of sickness. Mm-hmm. Like perhaps maybe some friends I would encounter at school. I wasn't afraid of things like malaria because I've had malaria so many times in life. But it's because I knew, oh, if you get malaria, you just get treatment, but you finish the dose. It's important yeah. to finish the dose and things like that. So I, I genuinely had an interest for health. Now, first of all, I didn't become a doctor or go to med school for, that's a story for another day, given the education <laughs> system. Uh-huh. But when I eventually decided to pursue an MFA in visual communication design at Kent State, I, I was sort of exposed to this subdiscipline of design called design for social impact, design for social good. And it was interesting because I started to realize that moment that design, which in a lot of ways is a, is a way to bring clarity to, mm. to anything, can apply anywhere. Mm. And that in the healthcare field, there's a lot of need <laughs> to make a lot of it, things. It is so complex, <laughs> so chaotic. There is such a need for clarity. And yeah, it's a design can be yeah. a powerful tool to bring clarity to that. 
Yes, there is a need for that. And and so there was this one project that I think for me was where it all started in, in grad school. We were partnering with an organization um, in Chicago called Rule 29, and they were working in partnership with a nonprofit in Kibera, Kenya, which is uh, this really big slum in Kenya. And they were looking, they were looking at ideas to create graphic tools that could, could really enhance the patient-doctor conversation. Mm. And so for me, that was my the first time I was getting to see how my expertise in design was going to help inform and and hopefully propose culturally relevant solutions to this really complex issue. So it ended up being like a, a year and a half long process, but they had a really strong foundation because through that I was able to see the the value of understanding culture, the value of images uh, and the power visuals can have in just aiding and ha- allowing people who are seeking healthcare to feel more comfortable in a clinical space to articulate their symptoms or what was ailing them by pointing to certain visuals because they couldn't necessarily speak English. So mm. that's where I started. So, so my research and that's where my passion is, health, really. Wow. Oh, that's fascinating. So did you always have that passion? You were in this doctor's village in Uganda and you said, I want to be a graphic designer growing up? No. First of all, in Uganda, that does not, that did not even exist. Graphic design? What? No. I I want to pause. Tell us about like Uganda from what I know. It's in East Africa, borders Kenya. It's about the size of the state of Arizona. Yeah, um, it's landlocked. Landlocked. And so, and you grew up there and didn't leave Uganda until you went to college. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Right, right. Yes. Yeah. Uganda is the pearl of Africa. Like they say, you know what, really gifted by nature and such a great place um, to grow up, not without its issues. But so wh- I, I wasn't really exposed to design at a young age. Hmm. So I, it wasn't even on my radar really? at all. And, and I would imagine it's interesting. You'd probably find a common thread as you keep talking to more practitioners from the continent. So you There'll be a common thread yeah. that usually like the sciences. If you First of all, education is a privilege. And then to be a girl child mm. that to get education, like that's huge Mm. so you're going to try and make the most of it and so the options usually are either become a doctor lawyer engineer like professions that are going to be lucrative in the long run Mm. so for me as a young child growing up in primary school I was really good at math really good at math but then I was also really good at art and drawing Mm. and I remember vividly at 10 years old I was in math class and my math teacher assigned a certain mathematical problem and I finished it so quickly and then I was so scared that maybe I did it wrong because everyone else was still doing it and so he looked at me and I was starting to get nervous I was thinking about erasing it so he came by and looked at my solution and and he he asked me how did you do this and I explained to him and he said huh okay so then at the end of the assignment he looked at me and told me you're going to be an architect (laughs) wow I don't know what that is and he said no you're you're good at math and I know you love art so that's what you become math plus art equals architecture so let me tell you Bon from the time I was 10 to all the way to college I curated the rest of my education to become an architect whoa from that one comment by that teacher (laughs) yes that one 
the power of the wow. words we speak, right? And especially by people in positions of leadership and educators. So when I came to college, that is what I was trying to pursue. And then I took this one class in college that blew my mind called digital design. And I said, what is this thing called digital design? You mean we can tell stories and use technology and create all these visuals? What? And so that's kind of how things ended up changing. But I did not set out to be a graphic designer. That is an amazing story. And you are also involved in a project where you're teaching design education in Uganda, right? You're equipping young people Mm -hmm. with skills in design and creative problem solving. Is that inspired by maybe a little bit of your experience? Absolutely. It's inspired by one, me recognizing that my path in life, in a lot of ways, a lot of people poured into my life and spoke into my life and created experiences that would get me on this pathway and so I'm a a firm believer that a lot has been given to me and I've always wanted to make sure that I give it back and also play a role in hopefully inspiring someone to pursue their dreams whatever those might be but because design wasn't really it was design was a mystery to me I that one class literally changed the course of the rest of my career because I was exposed to something I wasn't really exposed to ever. Mm. So I, I knew that in in our Ugandan education system, it, it's not that there is a lack of <clears throat> people who are creative or people who are designing. We just don't name it. And our education doesn't have pathways to help young people hone those yeah. skills. So through, through design ed workshops, which in a lot of ways was me building upon my graduate thesis, which sought to reimagine our... <laughs> education curriculum for so many different reasons it allowed for me to bring design closer to people so we I get together with young people at at different stages in 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 their lives from being post-university trained to high school and we just talk about what this thing called design is and, and and why why it's important that we think about it because everything is designed whether it's systems processes products services someone you know made certain decisions for these things to work the way they work so let's all learn about how to make things work a certain way and so that's how that started what are some of the responses from the kids that you teach when you share with them about what design is and how everything in and around their lives have been designed yeah it's agency they want they recognize that whoa, I can also make things a certain way or I have the power to to inspire change in certain ways. I think it's both a light bulb moment, but it's also a realization of you're doing it. You're already doing it. And you perhaps didn't think that it, it could amount to anything more, that it could be like a career pathway for you to pursue. But it's them taking ownership and saying, oh, we can actually solve own problems. We can really be equipped to challenge our own education system and interrogate where the, mm. the gaps are. So in Ugandan, in, in the Ugandan schooling, which is a very British 
instilled kind of education unfortunately it's it's very theoretical in its delivery we're not often asked to interrogate the why mm-hmm. we you, in fact asking questions is a problem in the classroom usually your job is to memorize and for lack of a better word regurgitate like you so, know, sounds just, like medical uh, school <laughs> 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 you know so i think if anything these workshops really start to provide an opportunity for people to question and unlearn a little bit and say, no, you you ask the question or you actually have the answers. And, and even if you don't have the answers, you can think about ways to ask better questions to arrive at those answers. And so it's that sense of agency and, and just, ah, I love it when I walk away, not feeling like, oh, I have gone and solved this issue. No, I have gone away and and helped inspire people to solve their own issues, actually. <laughs> I, I love yeah. that. And some, some guests that we've had on have spoken about the untapped potential for the next generations of designers to come from Africa and that there is this whole wealth of creative people there, but design education is not part of the formal curriculum of education there. And there's some really excitement ar- around that. There really is. And in fact, I, I recently talked to a uh, brilliant, I feel like he's one of those people that now I often refer to all the time, but he's called Mugendi. He's a professor at Machakos University in Kenya and just really phenomenal guy. He said, the state of design in Africa is healthy because the issue was never an issue of creativity. It was an issue of confidence. And when you have had to go through colonialism and you've, you've for a long time been told you, you don't amount that you're less, anytime you have ideas, you're not going to come to the forefront as faster as someone who has been told their whole life, oh, you can do it. You're the best. Why not? So it's a confidence issue. But now that a lot of young people today are recognizing that, yes, in fact, you can do anything, we're, we're seeing this sort of crazy boom happening on the continent it's because people are taking up their space now and it's they realize that people say oh it's time for africa no it really is <laughs> and we feel it too uh whether we're in the diaspora or in the continent and it's such an exciting time to to be able to have these conversations to also share these conversations broadly to tell our stories and to take authorship of those stories too because for the longest time they have been told by anyone and everyone else except us so we now get to tell them the way we know how and the way we want to tell those stories and the rest of the world gets to also learn and, and figure it out. And you speak about this on your own podcast. I saw <laughs> you have a podcast called My African Aesthetic Podcast. Tell us what that is about. <laughs> You're so good, Bon. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it started during the pandemic. It started when we're in lockdown and a dear friend of mine who I went to high school with, who's an architect and is now living and practicing in Norway, her and I would have this long WhatsApp conversations and would just talk about our frustrations about not seeing ourselves in, you know, on like on the global stage when it Mm. comes to African design, African solutions. And it's only when someone else who's not African shares it that then it gets, you know, seen and, so we'd have this conversation and because we're in lockdown, we, I think everyone is sort of craving a sense of connection and, but we're also like seeing it's easier. It's really easy for us to connect more virtually and from a yeah. distance. So 
for me, one of the things I was always asking myself, even, you know, in my own work was where does my culture really fit into all of this? And even as I think about my own design education, it's, which I'm very grateful for, it's truly from a Eurocentric lens, it's Swiss, it's Bahas. And I think being African and coming into a more Western context, I knew what I was signing up for. I knew Mm -hmm. that perhaps I was going to go learn about a different place. But now that I've learned it and okay, it's it's great for them. Like what about my own sort of lens and uh, aesthetic and things like that? So we just wanted to to connect with other designers, architects, and, and people who are thinking about creative solutions in the continent, people who are thinking about what does it really mean to have uh, an aesthetic, an aesthetic, not, not even just the, the way things look, it's about the expression of our identity and uh, our culture and, mm. and thinking about our education and even the solutions we derive through a human-centered design lens. What do those solutions look like when they are truly inspired by our own cultures? And so we just have those. In fact, we just converse. We, we don't so much think of the podcast as a way to interview people. We just have those long conversations and see what emerges. So we just started talking and recording ourselves, want to also tell our own stories. Yeah. That's it. That's amazing. What are some of some of your favorite moments or conversations that you've had with some of your guests on the podcast? There's been a lot of really good ones. And one of them, one of the ones I was actually reflecting on today was a conversation we had with Abigail Turinayo, who works with Design Without Borders. And she's also working at the intersection of architecture, design and health, public Mm. health. And she says some really poignant things in in that podcast. She talks about how for her, it wasn't until she she started working with some of the most under-resourced populations. So like a lot of people living in, in informal settlements like slums, that she saw the kind of harm design and architecture can have, mm. not just on the lived experience of people, but on life itself. And she shares an, an example of which... <laughs> I mean, it's really mind-blowing. She, she talks about how th- they were working in this one slum in Kampala, Uganda, and there was this beautiful community center, which we all know people love community centers as solutions to solve a lot of issues. So there's this community center that was built in, in you know, the slum area where I think the architects and designers the, and the nonprofit organization that sponsored it were thinking, oh, I think it would be great to Think about how we can tackle sanitation-based issues while also providing a space for people to congregate, have their community meetings. So this community center had the most beautiful toilets and the whole the, the, the mm. system, the drainage system, everything was sort of designed at, at, at a state of the art. And she said when they were sort of in the community, they found that people had literally left their homes and moved into the bathrooms. Those that moved their beddings, their... Oh, yes, Bond, they had done that. Why? Because people said, how can you have a toilet that is better than your own house? Wow. Mind blown. So it's this idea of like learning to really design for the true needs of people and really not, I think oftentimes when one of the things I'm I'm reflecting on even in my own practice is thinking about how can I constantly interrogate the why? Like, why do I think this particular solution fits this problem? Because if we don't interrogate the why enough, we're going to end up creating so many crazy systems and products that at the end of the day don't really serve the people. Mm. And so for me, that was just a really great moment to 
to one for her to to talk about that experience of reckoning with her own practice and thinking about oh my goodness we need to really think about these consequences of the work that we do but then also think about what would it look like if truly these solutions were derived from the context of the people that they were being served what do the people who are living in this context think the solutions to their drainage issues are and is it's probably not that great beautiful toilet that you have there are so many other things that will kill them first before they can think about toilets so yeah it would look probably look so differently if the designers co-design with the community the stakeholders that we're actually going to use the end product and this implementing this principle of co-design in the process would have probably led to a better solution yes it you would think right but also unfortunately as a field that's not what we celebrate that is not everyone wants to get that thing that will get the award that will be published in that great magazine and unfortunately some of those more grassroots solutions are are not always the most like sexy looking things but yet they they will solve they'll solve these issues at least more than solving there will not be a band-aid solution that they would try and get to the core of the actual issue, which is oftentimes then even more complex because you realize that it's these issues don't live in isolation. They are a, a part of a complex wave of everything. There's the economic, the political, the social, you know, and, and that's okay. Let's interrogate that. Let's ask ourselves, what is the role of design in that? And maybe it's not creating that beautiful thing at the end. It's thinking about how can we make these systems visible first? And that takes time. And, and that's, what I'm asking of myself as well, to be patient with that process and and to really make sure I'm thinking about who the people are that I'm wanting to work with in order to serve. I love that. You said that so beautifully. That's uh, There's so many gems in there. I'm always trying to get designers to come into the healthcare space. You know, I uh, co-wrote a book with a graphic designer, Ellen Lupton, and she was just mm-hmm. been able to articulate design in a way <laughs> that made sense to me being not a designer. And I'm curious to know what you would say to students in your graphic design program who want to get into healthcare. Would you encourage them to get into healthcare? Because there are some challenges there, right? Because you're not training, you're not necessarily training designers to go into healthcare, but I think the courses that you teach, like design for social change and helping them to understand complex problems to come up with creative solutions are the skill set that is needed for designers. So I guess it's my long-winded way of asking a question of like, (laughs) how do we get more designers into healthcare? You know, that's a really... It's a good question. And I I don't know if I have the answer. I can only speak on maybe some themes and patterns that I'm seeing, which also in a lot of ways are what I wrestle with in my own work. I think if you want to work in the healthcare field as a designer, perhaps looking, considering the topics you are interested in might be maybe another way to arrive at that. So maybe it's not so much, or I want to work in a hospital setting or in a clinic, think about what topics are you wanting to wrestle with? Is what kinds of public health or global health or just health related challenges are you interested in? So some of my students are coming to this intersection by being interested in say mental health related issues. Mm. They might be 
in, interested in looking at tropical diseases and for some it might be looking at specifically health communication challenges which I think so far is the one area of, I think a lot of designers have been able to find home in you know that because we know we're in the business of making things clear mm-hmm. that so communication health communication is one way so I would say like think about the larger topics and questions that you're interested in and then at the end of the day whether that is through partnering or ending up on the staff of a hospital or maybe sometimes it's as simple as working alongside physicians who are conducting research studies which in the university context there are so many at our med school for example so I have a lot of students who I'll encourage to become research assistants on different studies that are happening. And then that way they get to also understand the mechanics, one of just the, not just the protocol, but even things like the institutional review board assessment, that there's things like IRB you have to think about. There's so many ethical questions. And before you even get to designing, you have to make sure you understand and go through just like the red tape, but there's policies and things in place because we're talking about people's lives. So it, it might, you know, give you a better idea of if you really want to be in that field. But there's ways to be adjacent to the healthcare field and healthcare related challenges without necessarily being part of the institution. So I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that <laughs> I the design is so undervalued in healthcare and I think other parts, other sectors and I read this New York Times article recently about um, how states have been giving COVID guidance and the graphic elements I've been using in, and it's so chaotic and uncoordinated. It differs from state to state. So some states, red or purple represents danger and yellow or green (laughs) represents it's safe. And it's this whole calliope of rainbow of colors that doesn't even make any sense and there's such a need for design to come in and give some uniformity around communicating health communication and it's so undervalued because I, I was thinking no one hired designer to to do these <laughs> visualizations and during the pandemic i think we've seen the power of effective communication in public health mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think some of that bond is because we're not always the best at telling people what we do or articulating what it is that we do. Sometimes we can't even necessarily answer that question. And I think in a lot of ways, we can critique fields like whether it's design thinking or the human-centered design process for for what it does well and doesn't do well. But it's partly because it's one of the, the, the ways that now people that are outside our field are able to understand our process. And so I think that is something design thinking and human-centered design have done exceptionally well at. They have just been able to use the layman's terms to break down that process. This is how we think. I just don't like hop in the shot and five minutes later, this beautiful logo. (laughs) (laughs) That doesn't happen? (laughs) It's not magic? Oh, and sometimes it happens, but it's it's a crazy cycle of iteration and a lot of failed failed attempts. And but you know, some we're not the best at constantly making known what it is that we do and also the value that we bring. And so for me, one of the things I, at least at this stage in my career, I'm trying to make sure that as much as I understand that the skill sets I bring can be in service of another discipline or another challenge. I know I, I can be on a team and I can help design and make something look better, whether this look beautiful or look organized. 
and there could be a really great system to it. But I also want to be at the table when we are interrogating and talking about what the problem is, because sometimes you might think the solution is a beautiful website, but perhaps it's in the name. The issue with communicating what it is you're trying to communicate is not necessarily often the intended solution someone thinks, right? So I think designers, we need to make sure we are also making a case for why we need to be at the table and having these discussions really early, which is, so for things like even research studies, I am really now wanting to make sure that when people seek collaborations with me, can you can we talk about this before it becomes like a thing? Can we actually yeah. talk about what what is the issue here? Can we see designers become principal investigators yeah. as well? Yes, we can be consultants too, but we need to be in the spaces because that's going to force us to then write and then articulate what it is that we bring. And when the aims of a study involve design-based processes and ideas, that's how people in the medical space start to understand the value that we bring. Yeah. I think too often design gets handicapped because designers are brought in too late in the process and they're not at the table in the beginning. Oh my gosh, I have so many more <laughs> questions, but we're running out of time. Maybe just a final question is you, how have you uh, been finding uh, rest during this crazy pandemic? I know it's so challenging teaching studio over Zoom. We were talking about that before and running classes and the students are undergoing incredible amount of stress and how have you been replenishing your bucket? What is rest, Vaughn? Bon? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think it's a really critical. And the fact that I'm taking a long time to even answer it is a problem, you know, because Unfortunately, it's, it's such a crazy time and this semester, the spring semester especially, is very hectic. But something that I'm trying to be mindful of, even with my students, is before class starts, we say, you know, we talk about what did you do for self-care? Mm. Let's talk about, let's everyone share something that you did for yourself that was a way for you to rejuvenate and replenish. And we share ideas. So one, because I had class yesterday, one of my students talked about how he's excited. He's now back out running. And as I said, I'm going to go run. And I ran this morning Yay. <laughs> I, and I did it. And, and I didn't feel the pressure of making sure I was running while listening to anything or I just walked and ran and walked and ran and I felt great and it was good. And we need to talk about that more and share ideas of how to do that. And still, I always say it's about stealing moments to to find rest and to just step away from it all. So I, I love that St stealing moments to find, to find rest. Pinita, thank you for being on Design Lab. Such a joy to talk with you and such an honor for you to be on the show. Thanks for having me. This was really great. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Panina Achayo Laker. Reach out to me on social media. My Twitter handle is at Bonku. My Instagram is at drbonku. Design Lab was produced by Rob Pavisi. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week. Bye.